Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, upholding Indigenous rights. It is a deeply significant positive decision from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Canada sides with the Trudeau government, ruling its Indigenous child welfare law constitutional and reversing a Quebec court decision that said it oversteps on provincial rights. Coming up, we'll get reaction to the unanimous ruling and speak with the Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations, Gary Anandasangari. Also, We'll find out why the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society says today's victory is only a first step. Cindy Blackstock is standing by. And... There's going to be consequences if the Liberals break their promise. Has the Supply and Confidence Agreement run its course? Are the Liberals concerned about the threats being uttered by the NDP leader? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Indigenous leaders are celebrating a unanimous Supreme Court decision that came down this Friday. It upheld a federal law that recognizes the right of Indigenous self-government and the right of Indigenous people to determine their own child welfare laws. It was codified by the Trudeau government back in 2019, but Quebec questioned the constitutionality of that federal law, arguing it overstepped provincial rights. That brings us to this decision. The top court on Friday dismissing Quebec's concerns, saying the federal law stands and getting this reaction from the Prime Minister. The Supreme Court affirming uh, that with C-92, which is legislation that we co-wrote with Indigenous peoples as a hugely important part of moving forward on reconciliation to make sure that kids stay in their communities and and are given the supports and safety they need is really important. And this means now we can continue to work with all provinces and territories as we move forward on making sure Indigenous communities, First Nations, Métis and Inuit get to take care of their own kids and give them the brightest possible future. Well, joining us now is Cindy Blackstock, Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. Cindy, always nice to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've already released a statement. Your organization released a statement on the the, the unanimous ruling here from from the Supreme Court, uh, decision rather. And in it, you say it is an example of loving justice. What do you mean by that? Why is that important? Yeah, Elder uh, Elmer Kershane, who's sadly no longer with us, always taught us that justice isn't enough for children. It was a reminder that the law in Canada has often been used to seriously harm First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. For example, the law was what forced First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children into residential schools. He said, when you're dealing with something as sacred as children, you have to do loving justice. You have to make sure that you're, you're approaching that as a child, as a human being, as a sacred person. And so that, there's that extra duty of care. And to be honest, going into today, today's decision, I wasn't sure that the court was uh, going to be, you know, at a place where it could do that. But uh, I think it did it today. Did it, and as I said, unanimously doing so and coming to that conclusion, which as we continue our discussion, I I need to point out the fact that you've brought with you spirit bear, and there's great symbolism of 
today and this moment and the issue with Spirit Fair. Right, and so he was held by Elmer a lot. He's a, a symbol of loving justice. He, sim he re uh, represents all the First Nations children who have been harmed by Canada and all the other children of all diversities who've stood up for justice during a long history of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case, which some of your viewers will know, uh, was to deal with the inequalities in public services funded by the federal government to First Nations children. That case was filed 17 years ago, this bear 17 years old. Um, and he goes to all the hearings to remind us that we keep our minds on the children. This is all about them. And today's decision too, while a landmark on paper, no child's life changed today. And so as adults, we have a responsibility to implement that decision. That's another piece of loving justice. You have to go beyond the words and you have to make sure that you're really there making positive change for kids. And that's really what Spirit Bear is all about. Well, let's pick up on that because I, I you know, you, you also said today that this was a great decision uh, mm -hmm. for, for people that have been involved in this issue, but it's only a first step. So what are the next steps? What exactly are you looking for here? Well, what I'm looking for is uh, currently for First Nations that have drawn down jurisdiction uh, under the Act, uh, the governments have said largely that, well, okay, it only applies in the province where that First Nation is. It doesn't apply if you're, you know, have a, a citizen in another province. Well, fortunately, that's going to be done away with to, by, by today's decision. And I, because we have a lot of First Nations where those borders just cut right through the middle of their communities, right? It makes no sense. Um, the other piece that we're looking for is for First Nations, Métis and Inuit who are drawing down jurisdiction. They need to have the resources, Michael, to deal with it. And the hardships of colonization have met. We have deep levels of poverty we have to deal with. We have trauma. We have addictions that flow from that. So we'll need those resources to make sure that we're dealing with those causal drivers that drive the overrepresentation of children into care. I'll be looking for that both on and off reserve. And I was so glad to see uh, the Supreme Court mention Jordan's principle today. And so some of your uh, viewers will know that came from the case that Spirit mm -hmm. Bear is involved mm -hmm. in. And it's named in memory of Jordan River Anderson. And what it calls on governments to do is to not um, let First Nations, Métis or Inuit kids fall through the cracks when they have jurisdictional disputes. Well, you're going to pay or you're going to pay. And meanwhile, the child is suffering. Um, and it also says that, you know, you need to give children substantively equal services. Now, what that means is that it has, the services that First Nations, Métis and Inuit kids get have to account for the hardships the, over the decades and centuries that they've been under. Uh, I remember a U.S. Supreme Court justice said, there's no greater inequality than equal treatment of unequals. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court is saying substantive equality is a, a, a mechanism to avoid that problem. Yeah, substantive equality. I'm quickly losing time here, but I do have to ask you, because as you say, there, there, there is more that you're looking for here. Do you have confidence that this government is looking at this decision and hearing your call? Uh, we're going to find out. Uh, we have actually a non-compliance order right before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal right now on Jordan's principle. And uh, the, what we're seeing is that the government is fighting against making the reforms to really uh, make Jordan's principle and honor it, instead of, you know, just doing the job and, and implementing the solutions that could fix the problems. I'll be looking for what governments do. And, and the good news for your viewers, many of the things you're seeing, the inequalities in water, all the rest of it, there's solutions on the books. The solutions don't need to be drummed up. They just need to be implemented. And when the public pays attention, the government does too.
Cindy Blackstock, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Well, joining us now is the Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations, Gary Anandasangari. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here, Michael. Now, the courts uh, says the law uh, passed by your government does not exceed Ottawa's jurisdiction. But as you know, Quebec's argument here is that unilaterally, the, 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 your government amended the Constitution by giving Indigenous laws priority over provincial laws. Court reference aside, how do you answer those concerns uh, being expressed by Quebec? This is a very important day for Canada and for Quebec uh, and for reconciliation. Um, today, the Supreme Court of Canada, the highest court in our land, reaffirmed uh, the federal government's uh, right and, in fact, obligation to uh, bring forward uh, Bill C-92. Uh, uh, it essentially enables uh, Indigenous peoples to draw down uh, rights to um, care for their children. Um, and it's a historical day. I believe that uh, um, the paramountcy of Parliament and the, and the need for, uh, for us to implement uh, C-92 was established clearly by the Supreme Court. I uh, want to make sure that we work with the province of Quebec and all provinces and territories in order to ensure that Indigenous children are taken care by their people. Uh, it is long overdue. We know the harms uh, of the child welfare, welfare system. Uh, I heard it yesterday at the um, uh, Indigenous uh, um, Federal Provincial Territorial Meeting we had on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, um, where uh, the, the issues of the child welfare system was, was pronounced. Uh, and we know that the harms that this has caused uh, over many, many years. And, and therefore, it's important that Canada move forward. Uh, and we encourage all provinces and territories to join in this journey. And I hear what you're saying, Minister, but you know, from the Quebec perspective, if, for example, the, the court can, can uphold uh, this jurisdiction of First Nations, uh, Indigenous governments, vis-a-vis -vis child welfare, what, what, what stops it from being expanded to another power, for example, health care? There are a number of, of modern agreements that we have across Canada where um, these, some of these rights are already uh, um, enshrined. Uh, for example, um, you know, we have self-governing agreements uh, in, in over 26 jurisdictions. We just had one with the Whitecap Dakota in Saskatchewan that was signed uh, late last year. Uh, we just introduced legislation to recognize the Haida, uh, Council of the Haida Nation as the government of the Haida people. Uh, so this is uh, something that is part and parcel of our constitution. Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 um, establishes uh, Aboriginal uh, rights um, and, and this is the next natural step in that process. Um, and we look forward to working with the provinces and territories to implement uh, not just legislation, uh, not just C92, but other very important legislation where um, there's self-determination over uh, Indigenous people's rights within their communities. And that's the objective of our government. And that's the path of reconciliation that, frankly, we need to move on. Okay, move on, as you say. We just actually spoke with Jean uh, Cindy Blackstock. Uh, of course, you know her, of the Caring Society. She says, listen, she, she's happy with this reference, very happy. But she also says this is really just the first step. There is work that still needs to be done to make sure that uh, Indigenous children are taken care of properly. Where does your government go from here? Beyond being happy with this ruling, what are you going to do with it as next steps? 
first of all, there are um, dozens of tables right now where um, uh, we are in, in the process of negotiating agreements that will enable uh, communities to, uh, to have the, the, the control over their children. Uh, and we want to accelerate that work. Uh, we have uh, a number of communities already, over seven, um, the last count, uh, who have signed agreements and who are in the process of implementing it. So I think the, the message for us today is for us to accelerate that work, work uh, in, in tandem with uh, indigenous partners uh, as well as the province and territories to implement um, uh, the agreements that, that, that we are negotiating. Um, yes, this is, um, uh, this is frustrating and I, and I share the frustration with, uh, with many uh, who, who have waited for this ruling. Um, as I travel across the country, Michael, I've heard from a number of communities um, who are ready and who want to uh, enter into uh, agreements, but uh, who, who have paused or who are uh, somewhat confused by uh, the, the Quebec challenge. So I think this gives the clarity that is required uh, for the critical discussions to conclude, as well as the, the uh, structures to be put into place within and by communities uh, so that uh, children can be taken care of by their people in their own jurisdiction. Mr. Anand Desangri, thank you for this. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Michael. Time now for a look at what happened in politics this week. On Friday, Ottawa and Ontario signed a $3.1 billion health care agreement. The deal says both levels of government will help the province improve access to family doctors, reduce wait times for surgeries and in emergency rooms, and hire additional health care workers. The investment will also make it easier for Ontario to accredit and license internationally trained doctors and other health professionals. While we're pleased with the progress, we know there's more work to do, a lot of work to do actually. That's why today's agreement is so important to strengthening our healthcare system. On Wednesday, the federal government announced $28 million to tackle the export of stolen vehicles. The new money is earmarked for the Canada Border Services Agency and is meant to increase the CBSA's capacity to detect and search containers with stolen vehicles at Canadian ports. The money was unveiled one day ahead of the summit on combating auto theft that took place in Ottawa. And also on Wednesday, the Conservative leader clarified his stance on the controversial policies for transgender youth unveiled last week by the Alberta Premier. Pierre Polyev says he is against puberty blockers and hormone therapies for children under 18, prompting this reaction from the Prime Minister. Trans kids are five times more likely in this country to attempt suicide. Well, Mr. Polyev, Ms. Smith are proposing is to take away uh, the rights of parents and their kids to make the right choices for them with their doctors. We don't think government should be doing that. Our government will always stand up for the most vulnerable, including our trans youth. Is the Liberal NDP Supply and Confidence Agreement about to end? There's no official word on the matter, but New Democrats are reportedly getting tired of their pharmacare negotiations with the Trudeau Liberals, and their staff have been told to be prepared. As for what we've been hearing from Jagmeet Singh, take a listen to what he said Friday. 
he said there's going to be consequences if the Liberals break their promise. And I mean that. There will be consequences. So some of the consequences are the Liberals need our help to pass bills in the House. We're not going to provide that help then if they're going to break the agreement. Uh, we know that sometimes we've been able to speed up things in the House. But if they're going to break their promise, then we're not going to help in that way. So uh, the Liberals have a choice. Well, let's bring in our weekly journalist panel now. Joining us are Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, Tonda McCharles, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and Joël Denis Bellevance, Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. Nice to see the three of you. Nice to Thanks see you. So listen, we just heard Jagmeet Singh there talking about consequences, and really this is not the first time we heard from the NDP leader this week. If you look at the reports, they seem to be growing very tired of their pharmacare negotiations with the Liberals. Uh, are we witnessing the end of the supply and confidence agreement, Bob? No. He's <laughs> playing us. Okay. Uh, he is absolutely playing uh, us and the public. Um, to be able to say at the end of March, look what we got. And boy, we were really being tough and we were threatening to break this up. But if you talk to the Liberals, they say There's, this agreement is not in danger. Uh, we're, we're going to negotiate, we've, we've, we're close to a, a, an agreement with them and they're basically gonna be five or so uh, particular types of drugs that are gonna be covered, uh, which is an important thing because these are drugs that would cost a lot of families a lot of money. So the NDP will be able to claim, look what we got from the government. But the supply and confidence agreement is not in danger, and they are not in a position to force this government um, into an election to begin with. They are in serious trouble in uh, large parts of the, uh, of the country where the Conservatives are eating at, uh, nipping at their, at their tails, so, so to speak, and would probably win those ridings. So um, it's good politics for them to try to make it look like uh, we're really being tough here, but I think he's just playing us. If you listened to Justin Trudeau um, on a Toronto television interview the, on Friday morning, he said, completely confidently, we're going to have an agreement on pharmacare by March with the NDP. It's perfectly underway. Uh, I'm certain of it. And furthermore, he said, you know, the deal is working and uh, we're not going to have an election before what he said was probably another year and a half. So, you know, those are two completely opposing views of what's going on. And um, I would I would side with what Bob said, that there's no way that they don't come to some kind of agreement, maybe limited at first, maybe scaled up later uh, by March. I'd, even if this deal does fall apart, let's just say, let's mm -hmm. just take Jagmeet Singh at his word that they're going to pull out of it. The NDP, many of them have assured me that they will likely keep supporting the Liberal government on a case-by-case, vote-by-vote basis, because I don't think that they are ready for an election, although they will say that they've paid off their debt, they're financially able to go into a campaign. But I don't see that happening. Well, and also, you know, it's, it's, it's important to note as well, you know, we've had minority governments before that have operated without any type of agreement, right. without a supply and commerce yeah. agreement. So what do you make of uh, these kind of threats that we're hearing from Jagmeet Singh? I think those are empty threats uh, mm -hmm. that would have, uh, because if they were uh, to be executed, they would have huge consequences for uh, the, not only for the Liberal government, but also for the NDP. As Bob mentioned, the NDP would be in danger of losing seats in British Columbia, where the, the Conservative Party is very, very much mm -hmm. strong. And um, the image that came to mind when I heard Mr. Singh do that was like a pressure cooker, you know? <laughs> There's a lot of pressure within the caucus, you know, to get out of the deal from some quarters. So you see the lid going like this, but I don't think it's going to hit the ceiling. It's going to stop before it goes too, too hot. So that's the image that I got. And uh, Mr. 
Singh, though, is, you know, keeping, uh, you know, uh, repeating those threats. He was in Montreal today. He made those threats on Monday and then answered questions on Wednesday. Uh, and I think he's going to keep doing it until, you know, something happens and then he'll be, he'll be able to claim victory. But nobody has any interest in going in elections right now except the Conservative Party. Yeah. And the Black Québécois doesn't want an election. So if the NDP gets out of that deal, you'll see the... I think the Black Québécois came to the rescue to the Liberal government in some matter uh, to avoid an election. Mm -hmm. An interesting point you say about pressure both inside and outside yeah. the party because New Democrats uh, seemingly are, are far more uncomfortable with this agreement than are Liberals. Yeah. But listen, let's uh, move on to another topic here because it's been a week since Danielle Smith unveiled her proposed transgender policies in Alberta and we've seen the Prime Minister react strongly to it, uh, Pierre Polyev being pushed as to uh, why he supports Danielle Smith in this and in in fact, this week he talked about his support for uh, puberty blockers. Is this issue a potential pitfall for Pierre Polyev as he tries to cash in polling numbers into actual votes in uh, more moderate parts of the country? Is this a potential pitfall for Pierre Polyev? A potential pitfall for Pierre Polyev, yes, to some extent, but also for the Liberals. This is a, a, a very divisive issue, and it's one I hope the politicians kind of stay out of because um, it's complex, it's highly personal, it's something that should be left to families and physicians to work out. And um, what bothers me the most about this is that, if you remember the truckers um, and people who didn't want to take, have COVID and these vaccines in their bodies, and they're mm -hmm. saying, you know, we, sh we should have control over our own bodies and the state shouldn't have no, no involvement in that. So who's out there doing this? Daniel Smith and now Pierre Polyev. Although, in fairness to Polyev, he kind of got put into this. He was he's 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 not going out looking for this, but he did he did get he did say what he had to say, and he's he's supportive of her. And you know, I I just worry about this because uh, this is sort of the kind of stuff we've seen so divisive in the United States, mm -hmm. this cultural wars, and and she's jumped onto it, and he's fallen into it. I mean, look at her. She was with Tucker Carlson for heaven's sakes, and now he's, you know, he's out doing Putin stuff. Mm. Um, so it's, I think it's a real worry, uh, but I don't think it, I don't think it benefits any political party because families themselves are worried about this issue, and I don't think it necessarily benefits the the Liberals either if they go out there and start hammering Polyev on it. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Tonda? <clears throat> uh, he's, um, I think, trying at every turn to make the argument that decisions around. Uh, education and health care should be left to provinces, but that's a bit of a technical argument. And so this week when he finally enunciated a position at least on, you know, the therapies and treatments that block puberty, even that, you know, you can tell that this is tricky because he said for adults. Well, that's not when that treatment is used. And so, you know, look, I think there's a certain amount of public education that really needs to happen so everybody understands exactly what is being proposed. But that Alberta motion is beyond just the gender-affirming surgery. It reaches into, you know, trans people in sport. It reaches mm -hmm. into uh, parental consent for sex education classes in, in schools. And while I think the Liberals are convinced that they ought to speak up and criticize and call out Daniel Smith and Poiliev for whatever tacit support he's given her, um, 
the conservatives, if you talk to them privately, are also happy to have the liberals talk about that because they don't think that a lot of the mainstream Canadian opinion has kind of formed fully around the liberal view. And so, look, it's not a vote winner, perhaps, for anyone. But you can see how it might have an appeal on the one hand, remind some socially conservative voters where they think that their allegiances might go. Um, so it's, 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 a, that, it's, a very, it's a very complex thing. I remember in the fall uh, there was uh, uh, demonstrations pro-trans and, mm -hmm. and yeah. anti. And I went to the anti one thinking, oh my, it's, are these going to be these trucker-like people? Well, they were families. Families. They were families. That's, that's my point. That's my point. I think that um, in what the conservatives used to call ethnic and cultural communities, there are very um, small c conservative social values, right? And around this question, um, I think that some conservatives think that, you know, they actually coalesce a view there. And so I think it's fraught, I, and I agree it's divisive, but uh, I can't assume at this point it's a winner for anybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and that's a very good point. And I think Mr. Poilier wants to present himself as the defender of parental rights, the rights mm -hmm. of parents to know. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, you've heard him say that, use that uh, phrase, parents have the right to know. So uh, that's why I think he's reaching out to the kind of uh, protest that uh, Bob described, that there are families. And in the GTA, I think you've got members of the uh, ethnic communities who are very strong values on, on, on family values, and that will probably talk to them. But uh, talking about uh, taking away this from the political arena, I'll give you the example in Quebec. The Quebec government, instead of, you know, deciding and legislating or announcing a policy, they set up a committee of wise people, if I may say, three people uh, put together, and to recommend options to the government. So they took away the issue from the political arena. And it makes for a debate that is, you know, less divisive as a result than uh, what uh, Daniel Smith did, Scott Moe, or even Blaine Hicks. And those governments now are talking about uh, using the notwithstanding clause to uh, make sure that their policies prevail in case this is uh, contested before the court. So uh, I think the approach by the Quebec government takes away the kind of divisiveness that we're seeing in other provinces. Yeah. And, and I just want to add one other thing. I mean, I, I don't mean to also suggest that all conservative opinion or strategists uh, are on the same side of this issue either. I think that there are some within the conservative party ranks themselves who wonder, is this a wise path to go down and like to why talk maybe. about it. Or, uh, and and, and they worry maybe if it, if it causes Canadian voters to wonder what the commitment of the party leader is to LGBTQ rights more broadly. Yeah, and, and Not I, that he said anything directly on, you know, more broadly LGBT rights. Although there's still the question as to why even legislate on these matters. Yeah. Why not leave it to, to other bodies? And it, it does become this political, yeah, yeah, because it does become this political worried. football. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, we will keep watching it. Uh, you know, you're my, you're my wise panel of three, and that went by really quickly. So, <laughs> I don't know, I like it. <laughs> Bob, Don, Jean-Denis, uh, thank you thank for you the time. Have a good weekend. You too. Well, as we noted earlier in the program, Friday was a monumental day for Indigenous communities in this country. Canada's Supreme Court upholding a federal law recognizing the right of Indigenous peoples to self-govern, including on matters of child and family services. Now, for some reaction, we also reached out earlier to the AFN National Chief Cindy Woodhouse-Niepenak. Take a listen to her reaction. The AFN is pleased that the Supreme Court of Canada has found that the act 
including the recognition of First Nations inherent rights to self-government and jurisdiction over children and families is entirely constitutional. First Nations have been waiting for this for a long time. At the same time, we've never given up our rights to our children. It's always been such colonial rule and, you know, in a colonized fashion on, on people trampling on First Nations. And I think today it recognizes that First Nations, there is many, I think over 90 already, that are working towards their own laws of child welfare. And, you know, it gives them teeth to be able to implement that and that the provinces and, and the federal government need to come to the table with First Nations in a good way. You know, we call upon the prime minister to call for a, a first minister's meeting to begin a different way, a different relationship in this country with First Nations that uh, brings it all together. And, you know, we look forward to working with all levels of government and all Canadians. Cindy Woodhouse Niepenak. Now, Cindy and I did sit down early this month for a wide-ranging discussion. We talked about her upbringing, her political career, and her priorities as the AFN National Chief. You can catch our full conversation this weekend on the next edition of Profile right here on CPAC. That is our program for today. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back next week. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time.